0: hello good morning and welcome to taking ship a podcast that tracks dumbest timeline america for posterity i'm ellie jacobs joined as always by frank spring we appreciate your patience in our schedules as we summered in the exotic locales of albuquerque and lancaster pennsylvania Hey, Frank, and thank you so much for taking a break from your tweeting with Graham West.
1: You're very welcome, Ellie. Uh, I just, I didn't want to feel like at this time of, of trouble and strife for America that, that I, I couldn't, I could have just sent one more tweet. Uh, and fortunately, that is not a burden I'm going to have to bear. Uh, so uh, as always, we'd like to thank uh, our listeners for their comments. Uh, and the ones, the positive ones you send us, uh, the creepy hate missives you send us. Uh, We love them all, uh, and and we love them equally, strangely. Uh, Please uh, subscribe if you you are listening to us but have not subscribed. Please do. Uh, Rate us on iTunes. That actually does matter. Follow us on Twitter at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in porcine. Uh, We're also on Facebook now uh, because, again, we have just joined the last decade uh so please uh follow us on there uh you will be kept up to date with that's where we put up our links and some of the articles we talk about and so forth so those are ways that you can track some of the uh the scintillating uh substance behind these behind our uh, behind our conversations uh and again thank you for your patience during uh this slight interruption in our schedule um this is meant to be our good time summertime uh summer broadcasting schedule uh with sometimes with guests sometimes not and then events have a way of sort of overtaking those so thank you for your your patience uh we anticipate normal operation may resume a little bit later this summer Uh, but in the meantime speaking of uh of events that have a way of overcoming our plans uh, we're not going to talk a lot uh on this podcast about uh, charlottesville i think most of the meaningful and substantive commentary uh that we could offer is already out there other people are already saying it i think i would hope um, that our listeners have some sense of where we land on this thing. Uh, it is There's not, I think, a lot of uh, ambiguity in an issue like this. Uh, but we do want to say just a couple of things very, very quickly. Uh, one of them is uh, there should not be much ambiguity on this. That does not mean that some people have not found it. Uh, so to our listeners, I will say if you find yourself tempted to uh, create a kind of – to indulge in any uh, equivocation or or suggest any equivalency between uh, uh, the uh, counter-protesters, some of whom uh, were prepared prepared to be more physical than others, uh, and the neo-Nazis who marched in Charlottesville, uh, which is to say, if you are uh, on any form of social media saying, uh, we need to be equally worried about uh, neo-Nazis and Antifa, uh, you are at risk of being an alt-centrist. And we don't want that for you. We don't want alt centrism for our listeners,
0: and also a Nazi th- sympathizer,
1: and also a Nazi sympathizer. Please don't do those things. Please don't be an alt centrist. Please don't be a Nazi sympathizer. Uh, for the most part, the response to this has been people coming out of them, uh, com- people coming out of nowhere and saying Nazis are bad. This. That we are doing this uh, is, it, you know, it see, that would seem to me to be self-evident. But hey, here we are. Occasionally, it's worth reiterating the old truths. Uh, don't be an alt centrist on this thing. Uh, don't try and find equivalence. You're not. Get, you're not. You are. You're not rising above. You're not making some kind of high moral point. Uh, this is not a time to take refuge in process.
0: Yeah, and it also makes you sound nearly as dumb and as
1: ignorant as the president of the United States.
0: Yeah, dude. Yes, that's
1: exactly. Right. And 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 it is not. There are times in life, and it's, I think, more frequent than we, than we suggest, uh, when opposing when saying I agree with what someone is doing, but I don't like the way that they are doing it, uh, a lot of the time that is just a way of, uh, that is a different way uh, of simply opposing what that person is doing. So to say I, I, you know, I, I approve of people opposing Nazis in the street, but I don't like the way they're doing it, uh, this is a time just to say I approve of people opposing Nazis in the street and leave it there. Uh, we would also ask consider before, and I understand why this is happening, but consider the words "This isn't America" or "This isn't us" before you uh, decide that that's the line you're taking on this, because uh, race, racist violence, uh, and, and political violence are uh, as much a part of the American story as anything else. What makes America, I think, distinct uh, one of the many things that makes us distinct as a nation is is not that. You know, racial racial violence doesn't happen here. I mean it's that it's it's been with us since before there was an America. Uh, and it's not that political violence doesn't happen here. Political violence has always been part of this. Uh, and I, I think we sometimes forget that because we have so many elections and so many of them are orderly um, that we we lose track of the different types of political violence that occur in this country, but they're both part of who we are. What makes us distinct uh, is that America has a capacity to evolve slowly, painfully, and often through trauma out of it's out of its it's ingrained sort of patterns of of uh of violence uh and i think that we can uh, my hope is that this will be one of those occasions and we can do that here so please uh you know that it's comforting to think oh this isn't who we are um this has always been part of america but it doesn't have to be who we it doesn't always have to be in the future
0: Right, you know the the moral arc of the universe does bend towards justice. I think you know, Dr. King was right in saying that, and uh, President Obama would frequently invoke that for good reason. Um, if that's not the way that the universe works, it makes really doesn't make work, life worth living. To be quite honest, um, one other uh, comment I'll make on this is the uh, the mayor of Charlottesville. Uh, is another member of the Truman National Security Project. Um, and I would say that he has done a pretty outstanding job in uh, dealing with the fallout of this kind of tragedy, this kind of, uh, it, it's a terrorist attack is what the, the, the car driving uh, through the crowd certainly was a terrorist attack. Um, and the, the the role that the governor has played, the role that the law enforcement has played. I and mean, there was a lot of back and forth that law enforcement stood on the sidelines. Apparently that was the uh, alt-rights militia standing on the sidelines, dressed to look like law enforcement officers. And this was a very well-organized or attempted well-organized um, mass protest um, led by the likes of David Duke and um, Spencer and some of their accolades. And, and I think this is the first of many we're gonna see. Yeah. Yeah. This, I mean, this, this is not, Yeah, again, this, this is not over. Um,
1: and, and I, th- I think that we, we, yeah, this is, this is not over. Um, it, you know, it continues. There are constructive ways to oppose these people. Uh, and I think we're all sort of gripping to figure out kind of what those are. Uh, there are constructive ways to oppose these people, um, but but taking refuge in process, finding moral equivalency or pretending like this somehow is not a part of the American story that we're going to have to deal with together is just not. That's it's that's that's not how we're going to get there. Right. Uh, so I think we may leave it there on Charlottesville. Um, stay stay safe out there, everyone. Uh, we have, however, other things to talk about. Uh, one of the reasons we wanted to do this podcast is there are updates to important things uh, that have been kind of lost. And understandably, we've lost sight of because there uh, are, are, are bigger things happening. But um, there's important stuff going on out there as well. Uh, and we have one of them here. We have, on a somewhat lighter note, we have an important update uh, from the war on the war on corruption. And for that, we turn to uh, our Venal, our, uh, venal Pack uh, or Venal Pack uh, correspondent, Ellie
0: Jacobs. Thank you very much, Frank. Venal Pack, uh, we are really, we are really excited about this one. There's a gentleman in Virginia Beach named Bob Hedgeman, age 70. He recently filed a lawsuit in U.S. district court saying the National and Virginia Republican parties and some GOP leaders raised millions of dollars in campaign funds while knowing they weren't going to be able to overturn the law, also known as Obamacare. He alleges that the GOP quote, has been engaged in a pattern of racketeering, which involves massive fraud perpetrated on Republican voters and contributors, as well as some independents and Democrats. Racketeering, perhaps better known for use in prosecuting organized crime, involves a pattern of illegal behavior by a specific group. Uh, Hegman went on, uh, quote, now that the Republican party has won the House, the Senate and the presidency, the effort is it is making to repeal and replace Obamacare is itself a fraud upon Republican voters and donors. The, quote, pattern of Republican pattern of racketeering extended to the party's response to Trump's candidacy. His his suit goes on to state the GOP GOP units raised money to push the health care repeal or Trump's promises, but, quote, never intended to implement the Trump agenda or fulfill the promises of the Republican platform. Hedgeman suit contends that the Republican Party knew the GOP wouldn't be able to repeal the health care law after President Barack Obama's reelection in November 2012, but continued to raise money on the promise that it would. He points to statements by former Speaker John Boehner um, had made stating Obamacare wouldn't be repealed as evidence that the suit goes on to say, quote, in making the statement, Speaker Boehner was sending a message to House Republicans and others that repeal was not going to happen. It's interesting that he keeps capitalizing repeal. He was trying to put the issue to rest. Nevertheless, the Republican Party continued to use the mails, wires, and interstate commerce to solicit donations and votes to secure House and Senate majorities and ultimately the presidency. The mails, wires, and interstate commerce. Indeed. The Pony Express may have been involved as well. The mails and wires. Boy, when I... Yeah. You know, that's, there's nothing that gets my goat more than misuse of mails and wires. <laughs> <laughs> the suit goes on. It argues that the National GOP raised more than seven hundred and thirty-five million dollars in Virginia's party, more than twenty million dollars from two thousand nine to twenty sixteen. Really surprising that Virginia's raised only twenty million, uh, in large part by promising to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Hegman said he was standing to sue the GOP because he has been a contributor. Federal Election Commission records, which are pretty uh, accurate, record records show he gave a total of eight hundred and seventy-five dollars to New Hampshire's GOP. But no donation donations were noted for the National Party or for Virginia's. Yeah, take a take a moment to appreciate that, my friends.
1: This gentleman, you know, considerable donor to the GOP, very concerned about his investment of $875 cumulatively. Yeah. Mm. Tremendous.
0: He wants the party. So the suit uh would what he seeks is he wants the party to either return campaign contributions to donors or exert pressure on Republican legislators to repeal the law under threat or of losing GOP financial support. He acknowledged that members of the House of Representatives and Senate cannot be sued for failing to abide by campaign promises, but argued that political parties don't have the same protections. He he said before filing the suit, quote, if the candidates don't deliver, it's incumbent, incumbent on the RNC to go to the candidates and say, you can't do this. It's this is just this is tremendous. Uh and I, I I think I have very
1: strong feelings about this. Venal Pack has very strong feelings about this. Uh but to I mean to sum this up in the in the you know in a pretty straight way, this guy donated eight hundred and seventy five is not a small amount of money. Uh, By the standards of Republican donors, it is a large amount of money, or sorry, by the standards of Republican donors, it's a very small amount of money, excuse me. Standard of Democratic voters, it's a tremendous amount of money. It's (laughs) a huge amount of money, but the Democratic Party has never received a gift this large. Uh, So I mean, you know, my eyes are just like saucers here. Um, But uh, so this gentleman who's given, uh, you know, less than the maximum allowed to a single candidate in a single cycle, uh, to uh, a state's GOP, uh, is essentially alleging fraud. That the Republican Party promised him that Obamacare would be repealed, that he gave money on that expectation, that it did not happen, and that therefore he has been defrauded. No, yeah,
0: and they did so through by racketeering
1: by, by via, collect- via the col- via misuse of the mails wires yeah. and interstate commerce a collective conspiracy to commit fraud. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. And and I think some of you may have guessed what Venal Pack's position on on be on uh, elected officials and their political parties being sued by their donors is. Um, we are a hundred percent in favor of this thing if you because it is a cardinal rule of political corruption that if you hit someone in the palm you have you can ex, you, you should have every expectation that they will deliver what they said they would there is yeah. no point in greasing any in greasing any uh, skids or greasing any wheels if the cart does not then go straight down those thing go, go down those same skids or uh, you know or wheel unwheels in a very uh, in a very timely and efficient manner uh, he has every right. Uh, he, you know, he donated with a specific expectation that what that his interests would be pursued, and they were not pursued to his satisfaction. And the and the RNC should give him his money. Or actually, the New Hampshire GOP, assuming it has eight hundred and seventy-five dollars left, uh, should uh, and if not, they I'm sure they can have like a bake sale or something. Should give him his money back. Uh, this gentleman uh, you know, was was an investor in public policy, and his investment went bad, uh, and uh, he has a right to a recovery because he was promised some... This is actually an interesting question. I would say that contractually, he's, they're obliged to return it. If they actually view it the way that I phrased it, that a donation is actually an investment, then uh, this is just an investment that went belly up, and there's not much you can do about it.
0: Right. I mean, I think that's really the question. Like, is this just an investment? Which most donations, I think, are, are viewed that way. Or was is he approaching this in the same way that if you go to a store and you want to buy a candy bar and you put down a dollar on the counter, you get that candy bar back. But if they don't give you that candy bar, you know, if they're not, so you can punch them in the face. If not, maybe you can sue them. And it was, he looking at this as an exchange, as a monetary exchange for goods and services. And, and as you know, again, Venal PAC's policy of cash on the barrel head
1: requires that we honor it as a direct exchange of good and service. Yeah. If we, th- if we start, if we start going down this kind of, uh, you know, ambiguous, amorphous, like, well, it was really an investment in a series of shared ideas. No, absolutely not. That is not what Venal PAC stands for. Uh, this is, I mean, this is, this is a business, man. We're professionals here. Uh, so Mr. Heckman, Heckman, um, whatever, whatever, however you pronounce this guy's name, we wish you luck. Godspeed, sir. And that's the update from the fronts of the war on the war on corruption. Yes, it's going well. We've taken to the courts. Speaking of taking to the courts... A short update uh, on uh, everyone's favorite. Uh, it would be wrong to call him the public servant, uh, but but certainly, I mean, venal pack uh, champion uh, Paul Manafort. Uh, every you know, every, everyone's favorite uh, political consultant, Paul, international political consultant, poor Manafort, Paul Manafort. Uh, it's, it's been a bad, a bad couple of weeks, and it's been. This has gotten some coverage, but we want to make sure that our we have a chance to talk about this because the the texture of. The investigation uh, uh, that Robert Mueller, former FBI director Robert Mueller, is running into uh, potential collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, this sort of larger uh, issue of uh, of Russian interference in the election, uh, has the, the texture of it has fundamentally changed. We heard uh, last week or uh, the week before that uh, Mueller had convened a grand jury, uh, and this this is not new. This is new information. Although there was not a new development, apparently it's been operating
0: for several weeks. Well, there's two grand juries. There's one in Virginia. There's yes. one in Virginia. The bigger issue is that now there's a second grand jury in Washington D.C. Yes, correct. Yes, that's an example. Yes, so yes, that's
1: exactly right. There's a there's another there's a second grand jury, uh, and again these have been operating for a while. Um, but this indicates the scope of the investigation is broadening. And then last week, um, the uh, the Department of Justice served a uh, warrant on Paul Manafort's house. Houses. Houses, yes, houses. Thank you as well. Houses, um, one of which at least was a so-called no-knock warrant, which means they just walk in and start looking for things. And you get a no-knock warrant uh, when you are concerned that the person who in that house, that per- that per- the person in that house, might destroy evidence uh, before you have a chance to uh, to secure it. In the event that you actually knock, so the FBI woke Paul. The story is the FBI woke Paul Manafort up by knocking on his bedroom door. Uh, which I have to say is a very polite way. They always do that for me whenever they come to serve a warrant at sure. my place. Um sometimes they bring me a cup of coffee. Uh, you know, it's just I've got to tell you, listen, before we get into it, like they have a bad rap. But if you're going to be served with a warrant or a subpoena or arrested in the morning, by a federal agency, it's got to be the FBI. It's the FBI every time because those assholes with the DEA will just like, they'll slap you around. Yeah, uh, yeah. They'll call you names. They'll, they'll ruffle your clothes and so forth. The FBI guys, like they, they, they understand the etiquette of things and I for one approve. Uh, so anyway, what this means, what this warrant means, and just, this is the, the real point of this. I want to make sure that everyone is clear on what this means. This is when you convene a grand jury and start issuing subpoenas. It means you are looking for information that might, that, that would that would inform a potential case. When you have a warrant, it means that you have identified a specific crime that you believe was committed, that you have identified a specific piece of, of evidence uh, that would materially support the investigation of that crime, and that you know where that piece of evidence is. That is a very high, and you have to uh, name all of those things with specificity to, uh, to get the warrant signed by a federal judge. This is a significant escalation in the investigation, and that and that's where we are with Paul Manafort.
0: Right. Uh, you so know, and, it, you know, and to clarify, this doesn't necessarily mean that uh, Donald Trump's campaign colluded with the Russians. We don't know that. Um, and Frank, you and I have not spent a lot of time going into in depth into the Russia investigation. Um, not that we want to um, flack, uh, flack for other podcasts, but the uh, gentleman over at Commentary a couple weeks ago did a uh, really outstanding job taking the case piece by piece. Uh, and it's worth listening to um, because they do do it from a, a very um, non completely non-ideological position. Uh, they just kind of go through the facts. Um, but, you know, the, the grand jury being summoned, as Frank said, it means that there is an idea of what happened and the fact that they're going after to after Manafort means that uh, either one, they're trying to uh, force, you know, freak him out enough so that he will become a corroborating witness or two, they think that there is uh, something there that he is guilty of doing that is uh, against the law or that can help them build the case towards, uh, any kind of corroboration, collusion, um, help, help ask. Well, we know the Trump campaign asked the Russians for help when Donald Trump at a press conference asked for them to find Hillary's 33,000 deleted emails. Um, But again, you know, this doesn't mean that Donald Trump's being impeached tomorrow. This doesn't mean Donald Trump's being indicted tomorrow. Um, But it could mean that we start seeing indictments handed down to people like Paul Manafort and Keith Schiller and uh, Trump's longtime assistant, potentially even people like Ivanka and Jared and Don Jr. But that's all speculation. At this point, we just know that Paul Manafort got woke up in the middle of the night by the FBI.
1: Yes, um, and again, this met, this means the texture of the investigation has changed. It'll still be a long time before we see anything from this, but we've gone from what's clearly happened is they've gone from a theory of a a sort of a general theory of a crime to a specific crime that they're now investigating, and that's that's a fairly significant escalation of Manafort. Uh, let's, but it also means in this, there's been stories that have sort of on you know liberal uh, conspiracy Twitter uh, meaning, meaning, meaning liberal tweeters, uh, who, uh, are into Russia conspiracies, not people who believe in liberal conspiracies, liberal conspiracy. Twitter has been saying for a while that Paul Manafort has already flipped and Michael Flynn's already flipped all this other stuff. Manafort at least hasn't already flipped, uh, at least as of when that warrant was served, because you don't serve warrants on people who flipped. Uh, so anyway, that's kind of, that's your update from there. Uh, they understand uh, it, it seems now the, uh, grand jury may wish to speak uh, to or get evidence from Reince Priebus from obvious anagram Reince Priebus maybe they can uh, maybe they can actually figure out what his real name is, uh, which would be awesome. This would also be a tremendous uh, this would be tremendously illuminating conversation because there was at least a rumor at one point that Priebus had not signed uh, the Trump specific NDA. Uh, that Trump was making uh, administration employees sign when they were first when they were first hired on. Uh, he has, of course, uh, you know. Actually, I say of course, maybe he hasn't. Um, but it would be presumable to think the chief of staff is bound by the re- but by, by the usual rules on uh, you know on. on uh, National security and other things that he may not be able to share, um, but Priebus apparently may not have signed the relevant the NDA that Trump made every uh, made every administration employee above a certain level sign, promising to never say anything bad about the Trump about Trump or the Trump organization in the future. So that could be a very interesting piece of testimony in the event he's called upon to give it. Uh, and there's also a uh, some suggestion that the investigation is beginning to hover around this question of Trump Soho, which is a, a property of the Trump organization uh, that has that benefited particularly
0: from uh, funding from our friends, the Russians. Yeah, this is a very uh, kind of convoluted and crazy story about how this all comes about. Um, I don't often um, flag stories in New York Magazine, uh, but there's one uh, this past week, about two weeks ago, this past issue uh, by a gentleman named Andrew Rice called The Original Russia Connection that goes into this guy named Felix Sater, S-A-T-E-R, um, and his relationship with Donald Trump and Russian oligarchs and the fact that for a long time, he was a kind of informant for the FBI, a sometimes spy and gun runner for the CIA. It's a very, very strange convoluted story. Uh, but this guy, uh, in particular is of great interest to the government apparently, um, because of his closeness to Trump and his closeness to the Russians and his, uh, Former firms' dealings in terms of kind of of trying to connect those two groups. So uh, it's an article we'll we'll put it up on uh, our Twitter feed as well. Um, but it's something worth reading. Again, I mean, as Frank mentioned, um, conspiracy liberal uh, Twitter can be uh, a difficult uh, kind of universe of crazy people to sort through people like Eric garland and it's an incredibly th- stupid place and i do not recommend you spend any time there
1: what's her name mensch right yeah louise mensch who was uh, oh my god I, uh, drummed drummed out of the conservative party in the uk for being just the worst uh, and and now arriving and now you know a recent arrival on our shores
0: uh, to continue to be just intolerable wasn't her husband the manager for metallica or something wasn't that kind of her claim to fame Seriously? That's awesome. <laughs> I think I'm only
1: so. I'm only familiar with her personal body of work, uh, which again is just, has always been as far as I can tell, just, just ghastly.
0: Yeah. She's a, you know, uh, and as we've, I think we've mentioned before, t- uh, to our podcast listeners, um, don't spend a lot of time reading anything that starts off tweet storm coming. It's usually not worth, uh, reading. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So that's that. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll turn from the investigation to another piece of thing, uh, another piece of information that's going on right now. Um, and you'll notice we've sort of skipped over the impending apocalypse brought, brought on by, um, Trump's ill-advised rhetoric with the North Koreans. Uh, we hope to talk about that a little bit later this week with, uh, someone who really knows uh, about the issues better than we do. Um, but needless to say, uh, we are not stocking up on bottled water or batteries because living in New York and Washington, D.C., uh, we'll be dead before we can start drinking them.
1: Yes, that's and that's the general assumption uh, for that Ellie and I make toward everything in life, which is there are all sorts of bad things that could happen, but our general assumption is that we'll be dead before they do.
0: Yeah, uh, and indeed, Peter Mensch, uh, he did manage Metallica, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Muse, Smashing Pumpkins, Hull, Veruca Salt, Snow Patrol... Jimmy Page all oh, that makes me sad. Yeah. That sounds right.
1: Yeah. And their
0: uh, oh ACDC, and his first client was Def Leppard apparently. I knew there was
1: something about that. Okay. There was I had either yeah I mean that was that was nebulous in my mind in part because there's an effect that sort of occurs with Louise Mensch. God, I can't believe we've spent this much time talking about her. I promise, I promise listeners, we'll never do this again. There's an effect that occurs around her where the closer I get to thinking about kind of her, what she represents, her life. This also, this also happens to me with Eric Garland. Uh, my, I, I just, it's like there's a sort of fog of, uh, of, of, dis, of contempt that sort of seeps into my brain and makes me unable to retain any information whatsoever. I forget things about these people with with alarming regularity. Um, And I think it is entirely some sort of self-defense mechanism that's coming from deep within my lizard brain. Yeah, it's a fugue state. And for which, that's exactly right. I enter a sort of fugue state. Um, And and, and for this, I think I have cause to be grateful.
0: So thanks, lizard brain. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I think the only reason I remember it is... uh, uh we had a client that was sort of kind of maybe in a uh, year, this is years ago. Uh, but when the daily mail, uh, not daily mail, the daily, daily mirror was being investigated for hacking all, all kinds of people's phones and listening to their voicemails and reading their text messages and all that. Uh, when, uh, Rupert Murdoch was hauled up in front of a committee, um, uh, of parliament, Louis Mensch was on that committee and was one of the lead questioners. And, um, the, uh, uh, media, the American made media media made point of pointing out of her husband and his uh, musical legacy. Terrific. Yeah. But moving on to somebody who is not Louis Manchin is not a lunatic. Um, national security advisor, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. Um, the alt-right has been going after him and we use the alt-right here again as a pejorative, but also as an explanation of, people who read read Breitbart first thing in the morning, it might be a good way to put it, or people who listen to Alex Jones as if he's the voice of God himself or herself. Listen,
1: listen, God's, listen, if if, it is not well known in the Old Testament, but actually the voice of God was primarily directed against the globalist agenda.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure, yeah. So um, there's been a lot um, that has uh, come out uh, in sort of this... uh, very inner looking sort of crazy group of people that are led by their own pair of Tweedledum and D. Alex Jones and Michael Cern- Cernovich, um, who apparently, according to Axios this morning, uh, will now go a- add to the campaign that HR uh, McMaster has a drinking problem, believing that that will influence Donald Trump, who is a well-known teetoler. Um, I really... Still can't believe that Donald Trump doesn't drink, but apparently he really doesn't. Um, but w- essentially, what this is saying is that H.R. Uh, Master drinking and others, yeah, Master. Um, he's too much of a globalist. Um, he is anti-Israel. He is pro Iran deal, uh, and therefore he needs to get pushed out. And Steve Bannon, who according to some reporting over the weekend is on even. Um, thinner ice with Donald Trump than before, uh, has claimed that he has nothing to do with this campaign despite the fact that Breitbart is very much uh, leading the charge of it and that Bannon has been very quick to shut down the alt-right in the past over certain things. He has claimed that it is just the natural growth for natu- for nationalists to go after globalists. And uh, just in terms of how this is, might play out, it's important to remember that um, Cohn, Powell, Javanka, and absolutely, the new chief of staff, retired General John Kelly, uh, like McMaster, and he's doing a good job. And he's also probably one of the few things keeping us from the apocalypse. Uh, so this could be, although I dare say it, uh, this could be what actually ends Bannon, uh, and then we can only shudder to think what he'll do once out of the administration.
1: Yes, um, just to sort of give you a sense of uh, some of our some of the actors in this thing. Uh, I mean, this, you know, this. This is further to the point about the way this White House works. Uh, It is, you know, it's basically Barter Town, uh, and it's not clear who run Barter Town. I know John Kelly thinks he run Barter Town. John Kelly does not run Barter Town. Uh, I don't think anyone actually runs Barter Town. It's, it's, you know, like Mad Max, except if it's a less uh,
0: defined and robust governing structure. Uh, But just for fun... I'm going to go out on a limb and say Barron Trump is actually who's running the country.
1: Sure. Honestly, you know, I mean, at least he's protecting us from the 400 pound hacker uh, in the basement or whatever it was. Uh, But just a couple of things about these two. I just actually, I just want to bring this up about Alex Jones because I love bringing it up. Uh, I just want everyone to remember the time that Alex Jones was in a custody hearing and forgot the names of his own children uh, and blamed it on having eaten a big bowl of chili for lunch. That is a thing that happened. It fills me with joy. We can now move on.
0: Yeah, the the, the uh, thing I'll add to this McMaster thing, and, and one of the reasons that, um, I mean, the alt-right thing is enough to bother anybody, but one of the things that really bothers me personally about this is uh, we have seen the, there really isn't a clearly defined name for it yet. Um, it often gets lumped in in the pro-Israel camp, but it is not just that. Uh, I like to say that these are the pro-one-state Israeli right, right? Um, It is neither the pro-Likud right. It is not the pro-Bibi right. It is a very specific defined group of the Israeli right uh, that is largely funded by Sheldon Adelson, Um, not to get too conspiracy minded, but it actually in point of fact is this includes things like the Zionist Organization of America, which for a very long time uh, did very good things and as of late uh, has become the protector of folks like Steve Bannon and his ilk as defenders of Israel. Therefore, everything else they do is okay. Um, and in response to this, former Undersecretary of Defense Dov Zakheim came out with a very powerful op-ed uh, in Haaretz, which is one of the, which is the sort of the New York Times of Israel, both in terms of uh, left-leaning outlook and um, um, importance. Um, but also the, uh, there's a couple of former high-ranking Israeli national security officials that wrote a article in Jerusalem Post, which is sort of the Wall Street Journal of Israel in terms of outlook, um, not necessarily in terms of readership, but uh so the fact that as if you remember back to our alt center discussion we talked about how, to, how at times uh idea certain ideologically uh groups that you think are opposite actually meet at the ends because it's a sort of a circular continuum and uh this is something that i've been watching uh straight through the campaign um and this is also where kind of my meme of but 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 jared comes into play of uh, just uh certain members of the jewish community um kind of deciding to look the other way over disgusting, despicable behavior that otherwise would be trampled over uh, because of the belief that Donald Trump is going to do something for Israel that at this point he has not and likely will not do because it's crazy. Um, But just uh, one other thing to, you know, kind of bitch and moan about today. Yes, uh, these are all,
1: I mean, there'll be more on this. Um, there will certainly be more on this uh, because there's, I mean, there's the, look, when it comes to uh, inter-Nicene warfare within this White House and the various interest groups that are pushing it on the outside and receiving it on the outside, uh, there will always be more uh, until uh, this administration is voted out or until the heat death of the universe, whichever comes first. Uh, so speaking of inter warfare, there you go. Uh, speaking of inter-Nicene, that's, that's solid. Yeah, I, I've got Damn, we're heating up now. Speaking of inter warfare, a few updates um, from uh, the rolling conflict within the progressive universe. Uh, this is basically a weekly bulletin. Um, so how bad is the situation uh, with the Democratic National Committee and the kind of broader left space? We've talked about this before. We've talked about the different committees. I've talked at length about their sort of purpose, what they're designed to do. Uh, there's some updates from this. Uh, and 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 some of it was sort of actually thrown into um, a little bit of relief uh, over the weekend, uh, partly at the uh, partly at Netroots Nation, uh, which is a you know very progressive uh, gathering, uh, could be a political conference that occurs every year or has now I think for twelve years. Um, yeah, so that, that happened over the weekend, and then also uh, what happened in in Charlottesville I think actually also offers a little bit of uh, of insight into where some of the tension between the left and the DNC and the kind of broader democratic establishment is coming from. So things had already not been, I mean, it had already been a a, a tough couple of weeks uh, for the relationship between the uh, the Democratic Party establishment and and the DNC specifically. Uh, I've talked before about a tendency to use the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, as a kind of stand-in for the entire uh, Democratic Party establishment. Sometimes that's that's fair because you can't keep saying the Democratic Party establishment when DNC would do sometimes it's not fair. So when the DSCC or the DGA or the DCCC or one of the other committees uh, makes a decision and people blame the DNC uh, that that's that's not accurate. Um and it doesn't help the discussion. But in this case, the DNC has kind of stand in for, as avatar for the the Democratic Party establishment, had a tough couple of weeks. Um, There was uh, a story about uh, 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 the group that came out of the Sanders uh, campaign, Our Revolution, uh, went to uh, present a petition to the DNC. Uh, There were 60 of them. They were greeted at the door with barricades. Uh, And then a particular subject of, of dispute um, we're also greeted with donuts and water, uh, which the Our Revolution folks felt like was a kind of uh, a cheap attempt um, to placate them. Uh, DNC supporters, Our Revolution uh, opponents of Our Revolution, uh, was sort of they kind of fixated on this donuts thing as a as a way of picking sides, like either you're pro donut or anti donut in this discussion.
0: I mean, I got to um, be honest. Anybody who's given me water and donuts on a hot day in Washington D.C. They're okay with they're okay, but in my sure. Book. And this is as the, long as they're not, you know, Nazis.
1: Sure. And this is the and and I think and I have rarely seen as good an example of two political cultures that are just talking past each other at this point. Uh, because what what our revolution came to do and the way they came to do it must have looked like an anarchic, uh, just completely, uh, you know, sort of, you know, sort of the you know the lumpen proletariat has come to take the building. Um, to the relevant folks at the DNC, who I think were really surprised at how badly this encounter went, uh, and then from the our revolution perspective, being greeted with barricades as if they were, uh, you know, as if the, as if they were, uh, you know, a mob bearing, uh, you know, bearing torches and pitchforks, and you know, which was not their purpose. They came to to do something more specific than just yell. Uh, at least I'm sure that was the way our revolution felt. Um, these two sides, are, that that one incident was just a great example of the way these two sides are talking past each other. Um, well, also, and,
0: I mean, the, the juxtaposition of barricades and donuts, uh, also, I mean, it's what you're saying. It, it, it essentially really, it, it epitomizes how poorly the DNC is dealing with some of this. At the yeah, same and, time, offering them greeting at this while blocking them.
1: Sure. It was just, it, I mean, the whole
0: thing was... And I, you know, and I get
1: it. Like if, if you're coming for a reasonable discussion, uh, to you know, or t- to articulate a viewpoint, even strongly and angrily, uh, you are, br- and you are bringing sixty people. Uh, that that tells me that you may not necessarily be there to have a even a very firm and frank, uh, constructive conversation, but you're basically there to stage a small protest, which fine if you're going to do that though, then be expect expect to be treated like protesters, which means that you're not necessarily let into the building to to conduct your protest. Uh, that's pretty standard, especially because the DNC stroke D trip building, which they share, uh, is is pretty well is uh, reasonably well uh, well protected, I think, for obvious reasons. Um, but at the same time, if you are the DNC and you know these people are coming, uh, think about the optics of stopping members of your own party with barricades. Uh, and it just, it was, and it, and again, I would love to be able to point to someone and say, this is the one who really screwed this up. But the truth is, this is just two political cultures that exist within the left that are, you know, really finding it impossible to talk to each other. Um, and and this is just a great example of how. And that kind of came to a head at, uh, at Netroots, where, I mean, disdain for the Democratic Party as an establishment is, is a feature of Netroots, has been for years. Uh, and we saw some of that this year um, with <laughs> Republicans being booed in speeches and then Democratic Party establishment being even more booed in speeches. Yeah. Uh, and, and the sort of sense was the, uh, net, the folks at Netroots were kind of looking to organize uh, a progressive movement that does not involve the DNC. And I actually think that is pr- probably a pretty good, and I don't think the DNC actually would, do, would dispute that that is in many respects a pretty good thing. I mean, there is, and, a, and I'll give you a good example of this, so in Charlottesville, there were a number of progressive organizations that organized uh, to have people appear and, uh, you know, and, and do counter visibility to protest against the neo-Nazis who were protesting. Uh, and I, I saw a, a good thing online about this, actually, uh, you know, and it was or an exe- a, a thing that was, I think, um, illustrative online about this, which is. You know, there was an image of the D, of the Democratic Socialists of America flag, uh, the DSA flag, amongst the counter protesters, the you know the the anti uh, Nazis, uh, and you know it said you know DSA DSA was here. Where is the DNC's flag? Now we could talk about you know I mean it's there's a little bit of political point scoring there. I think there is, it, but it's a really another really good illustration of the difference of the way these groups operate. I mean the DSA is a much much smaller organization than. The DNC and budget, and then DNC doesn't have paid up members. So, naturally, but it's, you know, it's sort of what the membership of DNC is, is a sort of, I mean, I guess you do have, they, they do have members, but the DNC sort of conceives its membership as being Democratic volunteers, voters around the country, whereas the DSA is a much smaller and more clearly defined uh, unit of members. Our and Senate. also just voted in favor of BDS which yes exactly yeah there's yeah we can talk about the DSA i mean so i mean it's it's got an agenda that is a, for those who don't know um BDS stands for boycott divest sanction it's a a, a policy that is being urged on uh, you know, any uh, on anyone who might invest, who might have a financial engagement in the state of Israel, uh, and the idea is that you're meant to boycott them, to divest your investment, to divest yourself of investments in Israel, and to, and to push for sanctions against Israel until such time as there's, I guess, a two-party, two-country, a two-state solution. Is that what well? Preparing?
0: That's the theory, but in reality, the goal is to just end Israel as a Jewish state. That's, that's what the actual I mean, goal is. There, there is a,
1: there, there is certainly, uh, there is certainly, I suspect an element of that to some parts of this. I think a lot. Of, I think there are people who are pushing this for reasons that uh, are exactly the way you just described it. Effectively, there are probably some people who think this may be a, a who think this may be a, a path toward reform or whatever. Um, but it's anyway. This is a DSA, so. DSA is they're an interesting organization. They've had a lot of. Um, They've they've grown fairly significantly again. There's 25,000 of the nationalists. Who we're not talking about a huge number of people, um, but they are organizing and they are capable. But, but they you know, they've grown a lot since the election, and and I think partly as a pushback against Trump, but really as a pushback, I think against the perceived and not unreasonably perceived failure of the Democratic Party establishment to stop Trump, right? Uh, or to and so I think they were able to pull together some number of people. Uh, who were who appeared uh, and you know and took to the street and and opposed the the Nazis in a way that the and And then there the, the taunt was where's the DNC's flag? The DNC has never conceived of itself as an organization that does that kind of uh, does that kind of organizing uh, And so I think and and I'm not defending this or condemning it. It's just kind of it's the way the organization has developed the DNC sees itself primarily, and the, the other committees see themselves primarily, as really organizing for votes. That's what they're really there for. They're organized around around a regular political cycle, uh, and other organizations on the left, the kind of invisibles, uh, you know, Rise Together, uh, you know, the Arena Summits, which are I mean about candidate prep, really, but you know, DSA, uh, other organizations that are out there, and certainly the you know one you, know, you know the you know the big invisible one, which is political but not but not explicitly aligned, Black Lives Matter. Those are all sort of organizing around values and putting those value and putting and 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 taking action in support of those values uh, on a you know a, a, you know as needed between in a way that is independent of campaign cycles. So the Democratic Party establishment exists to do politics in the specific context of elections, and other organizations exist to do politics. The all the politics that falls in between, which right now is pretty much all the time, right? Uh, and and this is a cultural gap that I don't necessarily know that either is equipped to bridge. Um, and and the question is, will they? Yeah, and then the question is, will they continue to blame each other for that, uh, or uh, is there you know, or you know, or can we get to a spot where the where where the you know, the organizing for votes versus the organizing for values, folks? You know understand these are two discrete parts of the same process to the extent that they can assist each other they should but for the most part these are just going to be two two groups that can know each other and should be fellow travelers but really are, are different
0: entities with yeah, different I missions mean, I, I look at it sort of in the in the guise of there's one group that is going for purity and the other group that's going for pragmatism um and pragmatism to me in electoral politics is usually what it's about because you're trying to win um while pushing, you know, values and ideals that you actually believe in, which also involves, you know, some levels of compromise and negotiation and other sorts of things, and this other group, um, again, a much newer group that, uh, to large extent, grew out of this last election. It's not like it's been brewing under the surface for quite some time the way, like, the Tea Party had been brewing under the surface for a very long period of time. It is about an ideological purity test and. That becomes really problematic when you're dealing with different populations in different parts of the country with different values and different wants and needs, and that to me is why you, you know these two different languages that Frank was just talking about. That to me is really where the primary challenge is, and I don't know that you're going to be able to convince people who are so hell bent on ideological purity that it's potentially um, a suicide mission. Until there are, until they experience death, not I think, physical. You know, I'm talking, you know, yeah. metaphorical.
1: It's, it's, you know, I mean, it, there is certainly a, a history of organization of political organizations that take very strong positions and and really police the boundaries of those very strong of those strong positions carefully. Uh, it can be hard to develop any kind of size. It can, you know, they tend to they they tend to chew themselves up uh, because the obsession with, as you say, with purity uh, tends to as a as a way of undoing them. Uh, I, I think one of the things that's interesting about DSA is I mean I, and again I don't I don't know this organization especially well I know people who are members of it uh, you know one of the things that I think is interesting is there's a, there's a fair amount of disagreement even within the organization of their relationship with electoral politics and the, the sort of compromise that comes from that uh, you know some of them they are there see this as an organization that is there to advance a, a, a you know sort of social democratic worldview uh, and support and among other things you know do the politics off out, you know that that it occurs between elections uh, but also uh, support candidates who bring themselves closer to that so i think there will be dsa's dsa chapters i, I think uh, that will endorse democratic candidates that don't share their don't share all of their platform but are as close as they can get and some of those people will take part in the democratic will take part in The election, you know, in coordination with the Democratic Party, probably as volunteers who have sort of organized together on the basis of being DSA members. And some of them will say a plague on both your houses, you're all in the pocket of capitalists, and they'll move on from that. So, you know, I think DSA is is pretty heterodox with respect to its kind of, it's my sense is they're pretty heterodox with respect to their expectation that everyone in left of center politics will meet their purity test. Uh, But we're, you know, the party is, this is, you know, my general sort of view. My concern has been uh, that what could happen to the Democratic Party is what is a lot like what happened to the Labor Party in 2010 and 2011. Where I mean, first in 2000, except a little bit, the order of events is reversed. The Labor Party in 2010 lost the general election, then had a very contentious leadership election, uh, and uh, and and essentially then spent the next between the Miliband brothers. Uh, which was, I, I think now apparent now it seems ludicrous, but it was seen as being kind of a fight between the left and the right of the, of the labor party. Um, but what then followed was years, years of absolute rancor. Uh, and in this, there's still, this is still happening about why the general election in 2010 was lost, whose fault it was, uh, you know, what had gone, you know, what happened in, in the leadership election of 20 of, uh, you know, that followed, um, that, that followed the general elect, that followed the general election, uh, you know, who is the right and proper leader of the Labour Party and so forth, uh, and that that you know that that division between the left and the right of the Labour Party uh, that just instead of it kind of reaching some sort of synthesis or even being or even being a aban- or even just being being left to one side, uh, really was a, a, I mean a, was an enormous sap on the energy and focus of the party. Uh, And I was concerned that – and I have been concerned that the Democratic Party could see the same thing where rather than focusing our ire on uh, the people that we need to be focusing it on, we could be relitigating the 2016 primary election from now until the end of time. Uh, I still do think that is a danger. Uh, My hope is that we will see ourselves to a way where we understand some of the people who are angry about the way 2016 went – have a, you know, there is a function for them that that we can work together on elections and there's a function for them to express their worldview and to express their values off cycle that is an important function that the Democratic Party establishment has just never been set up to do and is not doing now. And again, because while that tweet was meant mockingly, I think it was a tweet, while that tweet was meant mockingly, it was in fact true. The DSA had their flag out opposing Nazis and the DNC didn't. For good reasons, but these are two organizations that should be able to work that that should be able to work together and support
0: each other in that respect, not get into a fight over who's the real leftist. Right. And as we've, you know, as we will continue to talk about uh, on this podcast, as this problem continues, there's kind of no end in sight, which is very problematic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. And with that, thank you so much for joining us for the first of what we're hoping will be two episodes this week. Uh, as, we, as I mentioned earlier, we hope to be joined later this week with a uh, real expert on some of the stuff going on in Korea. Uh, and we will dedicate a good deal of time to it because, well, you know, our national security backgrounds and interests and mostly because uh, it's really terrifying. And there's a lot to know about it and a lot to understand. It's not as simple as uh, it may seem on the front pages of some of the newspapers. Please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes in the meantime. Follow us on Twitter at at taking ship. And that's ship with a P as in poser. And also please check out our new Facebook page as well. Well, not so new anymore, but it's still a Facebook page. With that, Frank, where are we headed? Uh,
1: This week, we take ship for Kuwait, where it reached 144 degrees Fahrenheit last week. 144 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, and plants actually just caught fire. Um, This is something that we we just have to see for ourselves. Uh, So our plan is to visit Kuwait, Uh, we take ship for Kuwait, and uh, just to watch plants until either they are engulfed in flames or we are. This is a good plan. Uh, Nothing can go wrong. Either one of those is a good outcome, frankly. Uh, So friends, we take ship now for Kuwait. Take care, everybody.